Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Stephanie Van Hladke, the Canada Research Chair on Gender, Security and the Armed Forces at Queen's University and Director of the Centre for International and Defense Policy. And I'm Steve Sademan. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. And I'm also the Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. So please join us every two weeks for a new episode. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located on unceded Algonquin territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Hey, Stephanie, how are you doing? Hi, Steve. I'm doing well, and I'm sure like you, I'm having a hard time concentrating on anything, just tracking the news and what's going on in Ukraine. How was your uh, holiday out west? It went really well. We had amazing weather. It only rained on us in Vancouver for one day. Guys are super blue at, in Whistler and Blackcomb. Wife ended up falling back in love with skiing, so she will be agreeable to future endeavors like this. I got to ski with my sister for the first time in probably about 40 years, and now I'm the better skier, so that was fun. And we, of course, ate too much. So it was a great <laughs> holiday, and it was a nice break from everything, although obviously I kept in touch with what was going on, and the media did indeed find me in Vancouver. So I, we, I have been talking and thinking about what's been going on, so I guess we should get to it. We thought today we would talk about three different elements of the war in Ukraine. First, the state of play, what's going on there, what we think about, how it's played out thus far. Second, the international community's response, particularly NATO and the EU. And then third, thinking all about Canada and its response. So Stephanie, today the war is escalating. We're taping this on Tuesday, March 1st, and we're seeing the Russians take out the TV tower and focus more on civilian targets. I guess this is not that surprising. Have you felt any part of this has been particularly surprising the past week, or uh, has this pretty much been what you expected out of this thing? Hmm. Well, I think we're all pretending not to be surprised by this, but the truth is this has been a really slow moving crisis bringing us up to this point. I mean, before the holidays, you know, we were talking about this massive military buildup. And around that time, you know, journalists were asking questions to scholars and experts and, and people were not predicting a full-scale invasion like we're seeing now. So I think it's easy to say, oh, this isn't surprising now that we're a week into it. But, you know, in the past years, Russia had these large-scale military exercises near Ukraine. And I think because we'd gotten used to that, it was hard to predict exactly what Putin's next move would be. And I think the assumption was that if the military exercises or build up was going to morph into an invasion that it was going to be limited to the separatist regions. So I think that that's the first thing. I just want to emphasize this point is that, you know, even though it seems now obvious that this was going to happen, you know, it was a really slow moving crisis and predicting when and how this was going to happen wasn't all that obvious. Well, I guess my, the, the most surprising thing or development in, in the past few days for me just is the decisiveness of, of some of the international response. And so I know, and we're going to get to this in a moment when we're talking about the UN, the EU and NATO, but, you know, in less than a week, 
even though we're short of uh, military action when it comes to supporting mm-hmm. Ukraine, we're seeing a world of difference in terms of the international response in 2022 compared with 2014. And that's significant to me, not only on the political front in terms of the various statements we're seeing from, from leaders and then the financial and economic tools that are being leveraged in support of that response, but also in terms of the popular sentiments, Crimea and the instability in the Donbass region, the little green men, all that, what was happening in 2014, just wasn't on the radar for most folks back then. It was mostly policy wonks that were that were talking about it. And yes, there were sanctions, but you know, now seeing just in your own networks how much people are affected by this war really strikes a, a clear difference from the, the popular sentiments that, that we were observing in 2014. So I have been noticing this difference in terms of the global movement of solidarity for Ukraine. That is another interesting development. What have you been surprised or not surprised about in the last week? I guess I was kind of surprised that Russia tried to do this in a low risk, low intensity kind of way where they they were hoping that the Ukrainians would just fold. It seems like the military strategy was really conditioned on the belief that they wouldn't have to do that much. And it turns out they do. The Ukrainians have been resisting much more mightily than what I think the Russians anticipated. And so the only way to explain sort of the first few days of the war have been that the Russians are widely overconfident about how this will play out. And to be fair, most wars start by one side being over over confident about things. And it kind of reminds me a little bit about how in Afghanistan, everybody sent too few forces hoping that that would be the least that they would need to do. But this is a bit different because you know, when you're invading the country, you need to you need to have a bit of more of a commitment. And they had a lot of troops nearby, but they didn't use a lot of their resources. And, and a lot of the resources are only coming to play right now uh, as they start to level some of the cities of, of Ukraine. So I guess that was surprising to me, but I guess one of the things that's surprising but shouldn't be surprised is a repeated lesson of war that, that people are overly confident and hope to make a minimal investment and then they find out that it didn't work out that way. I too have been very surprised by the, how fast the international community has turned on the dawn. That was maybe a week ago, maybe 10 days ago, that there was a lot of division in, within Europe and between Europe and the United States over what kind of sanctions they might want to apply if things got hot. And now we've gone beyond whatever previous discussion of sanctions were to some much more more intensive and intrusive sanctions that are biting the Russians quite hard. There was a picture this morning of Russians in the metro who could not use their Apple Pay systems or similar kinds of pay systems because, you know, the various providers have turned off Russia. And that's going to make it very hard for the Russians to do just ordinary business stuff, not to mention exchanging rubles for dollars or whatever else that they need to do. So I do think that the reactions have been swifter on, from the outside than it would have been. Swifter? Is that a play on words? <laughs> It was not, but I guess it should be. Uh, it was not deliberate. So I think that's, that's where I stand on that. I do think that Zelensky has reminded me how important it is to have people who have sharp communication skills and positions of power. I, I read a book a while back by Clifford Bob, who was writing about why some rebel movements get more support than others. And one of the findings he had was about those who had good writers. You know, if you've got a good message, a good narrative, that'll help you get money from Amnesty International or Greenpeace, wherever else, and that will lead to more money flowing to you. And Zelensky, by being someone who you know, has spent his life on the stage, may not have had him be good at preparing the country for war. They, you know, they might not have done all the things they needed to do to have their bridges ready to blow and all the other kinds of stuff. Once the war started and he had to speak out in public, he's made a real difference. Uh, mobilize the Ukrainian population, be the messenger to the world, 
apparently the EU meeting where they're talking about sanctions, he was able to zoom in and present his story and move people to close to tears. And that may have caused the EU to move faster on sanctions. So uh, when we think of leadership, I think the ability to communicate cannot be underestimated. And that Zelensky has been amazing in this. And that, you know, it's, it's not going to stop the bombs from falling on Kiev, on Kiev or on other parts of Ukraine, but it does make a difference in terms of getting international support, which I guess is, is where we should lead to next, which is the international community has done a lot. Some people have been asking for more. Where do you stand on, on sort of the state of play internationally where lots of uh, anti-tank equipment is being sent to Ukraine? Planes that were seem to be being sent to Ukraine are not going to happen. Sanctions have been very extensive and widely supported. So, you know, the fact that the Japanese took a weekend to think about it and jump, then jump in, you know, people are seeing that slow. But really, the pace of cooperation on this has been quite fast. So how do you think of this? Is, this, is, is the international community doing enough? Should they be doing more? I think that the, the sentiment is that always more can be done, especially when you see uh, innocent people dying. But I am surprised at the extent to which some previously reluctant countries have fallen in rank and, and done more to help. And, and Germany might be a great example of this because Germany was seen a bit as a, as a reluctant player and it really stepped up to the plate. I don't know if you saw the, the speech from February 27th that was delivered by the chancellor, but that's where basically Germany significantly increased its defense spending in support of, of European security and acknowledging that this war is a watershed moment. So for Germany, that was put in the spotlight for being a reluctant player and for maybe not being willing to sacrifice the, the pipeline or might not be willing to support banning Russia from the SWIFT system. Germany has really emerged to be a leader in this crisis. So, so that is one, I think when we're asking the question, you know, uh, is this enough? It's interesting to look at who we thought were the reluctant players and then seeing how our previous expectations uh, didn't bear out. When it comes to NATO, I think there's a lot of attention that's being placed on NATO. And I think it, it'd be good for us to have just a little conversation about what NATO is and what it is not. I think NATO is a is a collective defense organization first and foremost. Its raison d'etre is to protect its members from external threats. But short of an attack on one of its members, NATO could still view uh, the, the war in Ukraine as a threat to transatlantic security, but it'll take a very high threshold for it to be directly military involved. I'm not saying it's impossible, although I think it's close to, to impossible. So that's the first thing. I think there's a lot of, of emphasis placed on NATO work what NATO could do. But to me, what NATO can do in this moment, if we stay true to what NATO is as an organization, is exactly what it's doing. It's boosting its deterrence capability and making sure that if deterrence fails, that it can adequately protect itself. So that means reinforcements on the eastern flank and then making sure that individual countries who can do more in terms of boosting their defense spending and defense capabilities are doing more. And coming back to Germany, that's what was announced also uh, when Olaf Schultz said that you know Germany would henceforth be meeting the 2% pledge that NATO had set out for member states to meet by 2024 and has announced these massive defense spending increases. So that's what NATO can do. NATO can also continue to use the organization as a platform for political coordination amongst its member states when it comes to coordinating amongst allies for who's adopting 
which sanctions and how providing aid, weapons, and, and also more broadly using their diplomatic social capital to pressure the rest of the world to follow suit and helping Ukraine and punishing Russia. So I think that's how NATO can ultimately contribute to collective security as a collective defense organization. I don't know if you know where I'm going with this, but you know, the collective security organization, the true collective security organization in it is the United Nations. And when it comes to the United Nations, there, I don't think enough has been done. The UN can, can do a lot in this context, but we saw what happened with, with Russia at the Security Council and for an organization which was designed as a collective security organization when you've got a veto-wielding member flouting the rules and uh, violating its neighbor's territorial sovereignty, then I think that collective security organization is in trouble. Well, the thing is, is that the UN was always designed not to be uh, very useful when a veto holder is involved in a conflict. So the UN went through what? The entire Cold War, where the only way you could get the UN to do something that involved one of the two great, you know, superpowers, was when Russia wasn't there because they were in a snit. So you end up the UN showing up in, in Korea, but no place else. I just wasn't expecting a whole lot from the UN in this because of of the Russian veto. I mean, the fun thing is Ukraine is now asking people, "Hey, when did we agree that Russia would get the USSR's seat and veto at the UN?" Did we actually have a process, which is kind of fun trolling? But I do think what's striking is there, that you can move from the from the separate uh, Security Council to the General Assembly, and in the General Assembly, Russia is none too popular these days. There was video of something like 140 different ambassadors leaving speech that was being given by the Russian foreign minister because they didn't want to sit, stand around and, and listen to him, you know, sort of claim that there are human rights violations being done to the Russians. So I do think it's a good form for registering to the Russians how isolated they, they kind of are in this. I think they, I don't think they expected as much opposition as they're getting. I do think that the the NATO has been very careful about this, and I think rightly so. You know, we've had people call out, you know, ask for no-fly zones and NATO intervene. Wow, there's this long column. Wouldn't it be great if uh, NATO planes could blow up this long, you know, 40 or 60 kilometer column that's headed towards Kiev? And, and the answer is no, we don't want nuclear war. And it, that, it's that simple. And so when people say, well, how can we sit there and you know, watch this happen in front of us? Uh, my response is we've done that before. We did that in Syria. We're, yeah, we intervened a little bit here and there, but when we look at Syria, you know, we, we watched that place blow up and we didn't do much about it and to prevent the destruction of the country. We spent four years where the UN was operating in Bosnia, but really the United States sat out of that and watched genocide take place. Rwanda, we watched that happen without really intervening to stop it. So we can sit back and watch a war nearby us. And it's happened before and it's happening now. And, and the difference this time is there's a whole lot of effort being made to, to arm the Ukrainians and give them support. And we're doing it very, very publicly, which is not the way these things usually take place. Usually there's some kind of plausible viability. But we're basically telling Putin, we're going to arm these guys to the teeth and we're going to make you pay a high price for this. And that's really striking, again, given where attitudes were a week or two ago. Wasn't that long ago, this government, the Canadian government, was reluctant to send lethal weapons. Now it's, well, which lethal weapons do we have on the shelf that we can send? So that change here, as well as the change in Germany, has been pretty striking. So that gets us to Canada. I do think that one of the interesting dynamics is that having a Ukrainian-Canadian as the deputy prime minister at these conversations have made a big difference, that uh, Krista Freeland knows Russia, she knows Ukraine. And so it apparently is the case that when the allies were talking about what to do about the Russian Central Bank. 
she made a speech that that moved the needle, that that influenced people to side with those who wanted to have heavier sanctions against the Russians. And now the Russian central bank is really in a bind. That's causing deep shockwaves within the Russian economy in ways that we might not have expected a week or two ago. We're thinking about sanctions. Well, you know, there are ways to avoid the SWIFT code change, but to freeze so much of Russia's assets is making a big difference. So I think I think that effort by Freeland has been successful. I think this government has actually been pretty swift, all things considering. I, I always tease and uh, this government about being slow and dithering, but they've been moving pretty quickly about sending stuff. And that right now we're shipping stuff to Poland to move across the border. Maybe we don't have uh, anti-tank weapons that other countries have to, to make a difference, but you know, the Ukrainians are, are hurting for all kinds of support. So whatever we give has value. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think two weeks ago when we were talking, the government had just made the decision to send lethal equipment, so mostly weapons and ammunitions. And we were saying that we wished this had come sooner, or the decision had made more quickly. But I think in the last two weeks, Canada has made up for that lost time. So I'm really heartened to see Canada step up in, in terms of its political leadership and also backing that up with uh, military capabilities, both in support of NATO. So, I mean, we can talk that about that in a second, but uh, Canada boosting its contribution to op reassurance uh, and also providing more military support, more economic aid to Ukraine so that it can hold off the, the Russian threat more effectively. And then, you know, the feature interview today, I listened to, to your interview with one of the previous battle group commanders from Hop Reassurance in, in Latvia. So the Canadian led NATO battle group in Latvia. And here too, we're seeing an increase in Canada's contribution and there's going to be additional personnel sent to Latvia and also kind of a, a force in waiting should the situation escalate and should the Baltic states continue in their Article 4 consultations and express braver uh, security concerns uh, where more allied help would be needed. So we're really seeing Canada demonstrating some, some leadership both on the political front and the military front and using basically all the channels at its disposal to, to make a difference. Well, that's a good segue for our conversation with Lieutenant Colonel John Benson, who was the battle group commander in Latvia. We talked mostly about operations in Latvia. We this, The conversation took place before the war started in Ukraine, so we don't really talk about that very much. But I think it's an important conversation to have because this is what the Canadians have been doing in the region. It's been a, a huge commitment, significant one, and it's now more relevant than ever given that we both need to deter the Russians and reassure our allies as Russia poses an even greater threat. I do want to conclude with uh, one one thought, which is that this war is going to go on. We can't stop it ourselves. We can make a difference in terms of helping the Ukrainians in a variety of ways, but we can't end this war. So that's going to be very stressful to sit back and watch this thing play out in front of us. So I'm going to give some recommendations in our segment to focus on other things because I think we need to, to take a break from this from time to time, even though we're consumed by it. Stephanie, be well as, as you are very, very busy in all the stuff that you do. Sorry that you can't make it to Ottawa next week for the big Ottawa Defense Conference. And there will be a small appearance by the CDSN there, I think, if the plans go ahead. But it'll be interesting to hear what people have to say and maybe I'll report back in two weeks about uh, what happened in Ottawa with all the big wave talking. Yeah, it's incredible how much 
things can change in two weeks. And I hope that things change for the better when we meet again on Battle Rhythm. Take care, Steve. You too. Today at Battle Rhythm, we're talking to Lieutenant Colonel John Benson, who is the Commandant of the 2nd Battalion of the Van Dues in Quebec, and he served as the commander of the battle group in Latvia. Uh, welcome to Battle Rhythm, Lieutenant Colonel Benson. Thanks a lot for having me. So I guess the first question is, is what were you doing in Latvia? Yeah, no problem. Uh, so I, I, it was actually quite possibly the best professional experience I've ever had in my career. So as part of uh, NATO's initiative for the enhanced forward presence in Eastern Europe, uh, the Baltic, uh, three Baltic countries in Poland, Canada is the framework nation for the enhanced forward presence in Latvia. And so under the, the name of op reassurance from a Canadian perspective, the Canadian leadership uh, is provided for the enhanced forward presence battle group in Latvia. Um, so I had the honor to to actually command a, a battle group of uh, a bit more than a thousand people from nine different countries. Nine different countries. And so I, the interesting thing is the Van Dues obviously is a located in Quebec. You do most of your work in French. I assume that the language Franca was not Latvian, but uh, English. You, you've got it. You've got it. Exactly. I think, I think, to be honest, it was actually a bit of an advantage for us. In the sense that, uh, like I said, the, the nine different countries, nine different NATO countries that were part of the battle group. But on top of that, you add, we worked directly for a Latvian brigade, American forces in the area. And uh, Iceland was actually represented as part of the enhanced forward presence uh, at the brigade level. So when you have that many, uh, you know, you have more than one third of NATO countries uh, mm -hmm. working together, that the language is going to be English. And the advantage, actually, I think that we had with the Canadians that we brought was for them, English was a second language as well. So, I mean, over a thousand people and, and it was a handful of people that English was their first language. So it actually became a bit of a evening, the playing field kind of a factor that, that it was actually, I think, a beneficial that the vast majority, almost the entire group, English was their second language. So if language was not the biggest challenge you faced, what was the biggest challenge you faced? The challenge I think there is is just ensuring that everyone understands why we're there. And I, I say it as a challenge, but I, th I think we're very well established there. So Canada's led that, has been the framework nation for that battle group for now almost five years. We'll, we'll be hitting five years in June. And so it's it's bringing together everyone to understand the role of, of why we're there. And it, it was a pretty clear mission statement. It was, a, we are there to deter and if necessary, defend against any uh, aggression of Latvian territory or population. And so so it, it's actually pretty clear. It is a challenge making sure everyone understands that. So I, I think the biggest challenge is, uh, is, is, is the fact that we need to make sure everyone's on the same page in terms of why we are there. Uh, the, the, the mission is pretty clear. Deter and if necessary, defend against any uh, aggression uh, of Latvian territory or, or population. But it's not so much a challenge at this point as just a continuing uh, working effort because after five years that we've been there, quite stable contributions from all the countries that are supporting the, the operation. We know what we're doing there. We're well integrated into the system with the Latvians and, uh, and, and we're having success. So yes, it's a challenge. It's something you have to watch and work on every day, but it's, it's, it's a challenge that's easily overcome, at least uh, in my experience. And you guys have worked out the fact that each unit has their own different regulations on how much uh, alcohol they can consume on a daily basis? Um, so, so alcohol is one policy. Uh, I, I think what's important to know with a, a mission like this is from a Canadian perspective, it, it absolutely is a deployed mission, a named mission. From a NATO perspective, this is not a NATO mission. It's a NATO activity. And, and what that means is 
the contributions are national contributions on a voluntary basis. But I think that is actually, to some degree, an advantage for us, again, because it's on a voluntary basis. We know what everyone's perspectives are. We know what everyone's restrictions and viewpoints are for anything that's administrative, whether it be alcohol policy, whether it be leaving the camp, Mm -hmm. uh, going on leave uh, during the deployment. And so, yes, uh, there were were differences, but there wasn't an impact from it at all. Well, you've raised one of my favorite topics, which is variations in countries' restrictions. I'm not sure how much you could talk about that, but how do you how do you navigate the fact that some countries have units that are allowed to do more on the battlefield and others that are, have to call home for making decisions, or has that all been worked out pre-delegated? The potential restrictions from a national perspective are never going to be worked out. But again, uh, stable contributions, five years that were there, mm-hmm. and the truth is the role how I commanded the troops that were there was through exercises and training. And so there, there weren't restrictions. You know, I, I, could, I could employ everyone, regardless of nation, in every single activity that I wanted to do, training event that I wanted to do. It, there wasn't a, an issue at all. Now, if we were to transition from the deter phase to the defend phase, mm-hmm. then there's, there's more political and strategic discussions that need to happen, absolutely. But again, five years there, pretty clear mandate and very, very clear uh, command and control structure working with the Latvians and, and having the national representatives supporting that. I did not have issues with what would normally be called caveats. That would make for a boring additional chapter of my book then. I guess one of the interesting things about this is you mentioned that that it's a NATO activity, not a NATO mission. And for those at home, one of the big differences is that in a normal NATO mission, the planning is taken, takes place in Mons, Belgium. That's where the operational plan is developed. That's where the force generation conference, where they go around asking for contributions happens. Instead, each framework nation, which Canada is one of four, along with the British, the Germans, the Americans, has those responsibilities. And so that those things are done, actually, I guess, in Riga, not at the battle group level, but I'm sure you have a lot of input. So that, that's a different kind of thing than what happened in Afghanistan, where, where the orders came from, down from on high. So I assume that as a commander, you find this pretty cool to have more responsibility, more input on sort of what is the plan, but it's also more of a headache because you're actually involved in going around to the countries and asking for, can you spare another platoon kind of thing? I guess, again, it's not as much problematic as we've been doing it for five years, but it's still, there are ups and downs. So I, I guess it, has that been more surprising and challenging than you expected, or has it been more fun and interesting because you have, you know, a little more stuff going on at the strategic level? Yeah, so I, I was fortunate. My previous deployment was actually with uh, the first rotation of NATO mission in Iraq. Um, so I had the opportunity to see close up the force generation process. So I understood how the NATO process worked. And then where we were really fortunate, especially me as a battle group commander, is Canada has established Task Force Latvia, which includes the commander of of, uh, all those forces that is permanently in Riga. So that really is his thing. Of course, 100% uh, supported by me and including recommendations from each of the rotations of the battle groups in terms of improvement or things we want to do. Again, as you mentioned, got really stable contributions. So the need to go begging or, mm-hmm. or asking other countries is, is, is quite uh, limited. In fact, I, I would say one of the, the factors that was, was important to take into consideration was the appetite of NATO countries um, to support this type of mission is very high. So it, it was actually the opposite. The commander of Task Force Latvia, Colonel Jeff Gaden, was spending more time speaking with individual nations about limiting what people wanted to bring in just so that it was manageable and fits within the mandate, as opposed to 
asking mm-hmm. uh, for more support. So what was the big surprise in your, in your time in Latvia you encountered along the way that you either didn't expect or underestimated? So, I mean, going into an operation like Opry Assurance, like, like Battle Group Commander there, obviously I'd spoken to previous rotations uh, and, and, and some of them are very good friends of mine. So I knew what the activities would be like. There's almost nothing in this world that, that beats the opportunity to command at that kind of level in a multinational operation. So I, I knew that was going to be a great, a great privilege. What, what I think surprised me most was how well our battle group is integrated with the Latvian brigade that's there. I was treated by the brigade commander as one of his subordinate battalion commanders, you know, at all levels from section level all the way up to battalion level, we were working on a near daily basis with a, with the Latvian battalions and, and, and troops that are there. And I think that was probably the most surprising, but also the most fulfilling part of, of the mission, really working directly with them. We're not a group that was just off on our own in a foreign country. We were part of a Latvian brigade, living, working, and, and doing everything with them. It was, a, it was a great experience. Just to be clear, let's say things got kind of warm. And, and the thing, you know, the, the Russian troops on the border, actually, there always are Russian troops on the border, but the, things were getting feisty. Would you be under the command of the Latvians if war were imminent? So th- there's a line there. Uh, of course, NATO functions with that the declaration of, a, of an Article 5 declaration, which, mm-hmm. of course, Latvia is, as a... Uh, a NATO member could declare, and then that could be discussed at the North Atlantic Council. On a day-to-day basis with the enhanced board presence Mm -hmm. structure, I reported to the Latvian Brigade Commander, and he reported to Multinational Division North, which was a Danish-led division headquarters. So on a day-to-day basis, we absolutely reported to them. If frictions were to increase to the point of open engagement uh, combat, there's obviously political and strategic decisions mm-hmm. that need to be made. But yes, we were fully integrated into the Latvian National Defense Plan, mm-hmm. and we were fully integrated into the NATO graduated response planning. So yes, the battle group would see themselves working directly for the Latvian Brigade if uh, political and strategic uh, decisions were made in that, in that respect. Okay, and I guess, from, again, for my interest, business, I, I co-wrote a book on, on how NATO operates and these kinds of things. I'm curious as to, were you the red card holder? Is it your job to say no if the Latvians ask you to do something you don't want to do? Or was it the person, the Canadian above you, the colonel you mentioned, was it his job to be the red card holder? So, I, you know, I'm not a big fan of the red card holder as a, a method of, of saying it. Again, 95 to 99% of things that we did on a daily basis red cards would not, not even be a, a part of the discussion because the command that I had for the troops and the command that, that the Latvian brigade commander had over me allowed f- for that decision space without any national authorities. But if there were any issues, I had the command of all the Canadians in the battle group on, on national lines, but I reported to task force Latvian commander. So it would be him kind of making that call. Again, six months there, not once from any of the nine countries was there something that prevented us from doing what we were supposed to be doing because of national authorities, which to be, to be fair, was, was a bit of a surprise for me, but you know, it's a pleasant surprise. But it's also not currently a kinetic operation. So that one to 5% that you mentioned probably come in, you know, you say, well, it's only one to 5%, but that's where the, that's the really interesting one to 5%. It's, it's one that things get particularly hot. And I guess one of the things that I was always curious about is that 
one of the things that people don't understand about Article 5 is it's not automatic. It requires a decision to be placed at, at the national, at, at NATO, at the NATO headquarters, mm -hmm. that the permanent representatives of each country would say, would have to come to consensus. And consensus is not easy to reach. And there's easier things to come to consensus on than others. So 9-11 was fairly straightforward, a cyber attack, maybe not so straightforward. And the thing is, you know, the Russians, which are the folks that you're deterring, we didn't mention their, their, the country name, but we're not deterring the Swedes or the Finns, we're deterring the Russians in this particular spot. The Russians in the past have engaged in a variety of behavior that goes from very low level stuff to very, very high level stuff. And uh, it may be the case that the Russians don't do an all out invasion, but do something short of that. And then I'm curious as to what do you guys do, what authority do you have to do to deal with, you know, 20 special operations guys from the Russians coming over, you know, little green men versus, you know, cyber versus something else. I mean, at what level can you start operating without having that NAC process take place, that NATO process take place? Because that will take time. And by, you know, if the Russians were to invade, for instance, with full force, by the time a NATO decision is reached, you guys might be overrun. So I assume that if fired upon, you can fire back. I'm not sure if the Latvians get fired upon, can you fire back? So I'm curious as to if you can speak to that at all, if this is all classified rules of engagement stuff. Yeah, no. So obviously there are uh, some elements of that discussion that would that would be uh, above this level. But but I, I can absolutely say I had both a moral and a legal responsibility to take care of the troops under my command, just as the Latvian Brigade commander had for us. And we had the measures in place without a doubt to be able to defend ourselves and to be able to react. Again, it, this isn't a NATO activity that is purely focused on training and exercises. Mm. Training and exercises is the way we demonstrate our capabilities, but we were there to, to deter and if necessary, defend. Mm. And so I had tools available to me absolutely at my level for that deterrence phase. And there were discussions and, mm. and measures in place at national levels to go beyond that as required. And of course, Part of uh, our mission is making sure that those permanent representatives from the North Atlantic Council understand what our role is, how we're integrated with the Latvians, and how, mm -hmm. how we fit in the bigger picture. And so they visited us, including the, the NATO Secretary General, and we had the opportunity to have those kind of discussions. So I, I, I never felt that it was, a, it was going to be an issue. And again, the fun part, if you will, or the, the interesting part is when you have a mission of, you know, you're, you're deterring, transparency is key. So we were clearly demonstrating on a daily basis where we were, what we were doing, what capabilities we had. And, and I think the biggest part of that deterrence was, as I mentioned earlier, you literally had more than one third of NATO's countries represented in Latvia working on a daily basis together, which I think was key to that deterrence as well. And what's striking is that the Canadian mission, your, your, your battle group is has nine countries involved and in, in sometimes more than that, which is more than what the Germans and the British and the Americans are doing in their sectors. Did you spend any time learning what the other folks were doing and what kind of lessons did you take away from how the Germans and the, and the British and the Americans are running their sectors? The British are in Estonia, lead the framework in Estonia. The Germans are in Lithuania and the Americans are in Poland. As you mentioned, uh, so four different battle groups led by four different uh, framework nations. But what is also important is, is four different contexts, where they are, how they're integrated with the, the host nation that's there, etc. So I had the opportunity to work both in the field and sitting down with each of the four uh, battle group commanders and, and working with them. So yes, we, we work slightly different. I think that the, the key difference that I saw between 
how the battle group in Latvia functioned versus the other battle groups was we, we've really brought that multinational flavor all the way down. What do I mean by that is my battle group headquarters was not, I did not deploy a Canadian battalion and add elements from other countries. My deputy commander there was Spanish. My operations officer was Italian. And so it, it's integrated at that multinational level, right from section all the way up to the headquarters. Whereas some of the other framework nations, just based on the context that they're in, based on who they're working with, what you would see is, is a, a structure that's based off of one country with, with attachments. And, and it's to varying degrees. The, the German battle group in Lithuania was a very similar uh, structure to us as well. And then I'd say the, the other thing that allowed us to be able to do what we did uniquely in Latvia, and, uh, and we did have the most varied group, if you will, of nations that were represented. What, what helped us as well there is, again, that stability. It's, it's easy or easier to do that multinational work together when we're used to the same types of contributions coming from, from each of the countries. And so that, that, was, that was critical to us. And I, I have to say, and I'll be more blunt than you are, because I can be, you, you only have nine countries in Latvia, but if you had to take a look at the nine countries, the eight countries that Canada is working with, a lot of them are from countries that had, you know, either very small militaries or very inexperienced militaries or had very heavily restricted militaries when they were in Afghanistan. That the Spanish and the Italians, for instance, I know from my research on Afghanistan, they had a lot tighter restrictions on what they could and could not do. In fact, their restrictions, Italy's restrictions pretty much prevented me from going to Italy to do research because there would be nobody who had permission to talk to me. And that's just a, you know, an example to illustrate the dynamic. And, and so the Canadian mission is particularly hard because you don't have any of the countries that I would consider to be super reliable as partners compared to others. Now, it's been going on for five years, but you know, I guess the, the challenge here is, is that you don't only have many countries, but you also have countries that are just a little bit more challenged to work with. And I don't, I, you know, again, this is the fifth year of this, so maybe it's easier, but I can't believe that it's, that it's easy. Uh, I, I mean, I'd, I'd have to disagree with you. So, so I, I think you have some of the largest contributors to NATO there. You know, Canada is not the largest contributor of, of the countries represented there. Uh, as you mentioned, Spanish had a significant contribution. The Italians provided a combat team that was absolutely essential to what I would do. Mm -hmm. And, and we're, we're uh, very interested in increasing capabilities and supporting more. We had a great contribution from the Polish who provide tanks at all times for us. The Slovaks, while a smaller military, provided indirect fire support, which is absolutely essential to everything we do. So yes, there were smaller countries, but again, with five years of stability, what, what that does is, is some of those countries can provide those kind of niche capabilities that are harder for their larger militaries to provide. So as a perfect example, Albania provides explosive ordnance disposal group for us all the time. And that's, that's essential. We, you know, every single time we go out in the field, let alone if we're required uh, to use it for, for that kind of defense phase. But every time we go out in the field, I needed that team ready to be able to support us, to be able to do what we were doing. So no, I, I, like I, I really don't believe one that, that we had 
smaller contributions. When you look at the four countries that are, you know, the four framework nations that are represented there, I think we had some of the larger nations from NATO in terms of military capabilities. And the smaller nations, they provide a clear kind of specific capability that was exactly what we needed in that context. So remind me, when were you there? Uh, what was your time of the rotation? Commanded from uh, 15 July until uh, mid-December. So it's actually a five-month command period, but with the time that we were there before and then a bit after, there's about a six-month rotation. And so I guess the next question would be shaped by that, which is you were there during COVID, but you were not the first mission, the first rotation there going through COVID, but you were there during the Delta wave. So how did the COVID affect you were doing it? And how did you guys limit because you said you're, ta- you're interacting with the Latvians every day, and one of the ways to deal with COVID is not to interact with anybody. So how did you, you manage to prevent COVID from taking over the mission whilst continuing to conduct the mission? Yeah, so the uh, COVID clearly has had an impact on how we do things. The previous rotations were absolutely able to do what they are expected to do, but they were limited to some degree in terms of interactions with you know population, et cetera. I had the incredible benefit of having an entirely 100% vaccinated group. So we worked and lived with the Latvians on a daily basis. And in following Latvian government policy with restrictions and everything else, we were still able to travel to other countries to work with the other enhanced forward presence battle groups throughout Latvia to work with their uh, MS artists, which is their kind of national guard soldiers, if you will. There, there was absolutely a period in about mid-October where the Latvian government effectively put down a shutdown for about a month to control the spread of the virus that limited to some degree our ability to move around. But being vaccinated and having clear kind of command and control lines and clear mm-hmm. mandate allowed us to have much more flexibility than we've had in the last year or so. So it was it was not at all a factor. We had some cases, but luckily we had absolutely no issues with the health of our people. And again, uh, having an entirely vaccinated force was, was a, a massive multiplier for that. That's great. Uh, one last question I have for you is when I was talking to one of your predecessors, I think it might've been your first, the first rotation of second, there were restrictions on the interactions the troops could have with the public, not because we were worried about COVID, because this was before COVID. And it wasn't really that we worried that troops were going to do anything untoward, but it was more that we worried that the Russians were going to take any incident and blow it out of proportion because they're flooding the zone with disinformation. And I'm curious as to how that evolved over the past five years. Is Was there a greater comfort level with interacting with the public, or were there sort of still restrictions that way the Russians couldn't get an excuse to make a mess of things? And I guess the other related question is just sort of how was the information war going while you were there? So, uh, I mean, the enhanced forward presence concept is all about strategic communications. Like that is literally the most uh, critical aspect of what we are doing, because the best way to deter is to make sure that everyone knows where we are, what we can do and how we function. And so involvement and, and, uh, and, and working with Latvia population is essential. There were some COVID restrictions with previous groups, sure. but for us, transparency is clear. Transparency is kind of that key thing. And so getting out and speaking to the population, both by going into towns, talking with them when we're going around, setting up displays, discussions uh, with schools, work with non-government organizations for for supporting some of uh, their own initiatives. That was essential to everything we did. So no, there weren't limitations. There always is going to be a bit of a risk when the information domain is contested, as it is in Eastern Europe. But again, the best way to confront that 
is mm-hmm. transparency. You overwhelm the environment with transparent, clear messaging, and that that mitigates that risk. So for us, it was not something that we took into deliberate consideration when we were doing our activities. It was the benefit of making sure that Latvians, that our own host nations, that uh, Latvian forces saw us and worked with us and saw that we were an integral part of what they were doing, far outweighed any potential risks in terms of uh, disinformation. And given that the population of Latvia is roughly a quarter Russian, did you find population variant, you know, your ability to operate freely or your comfort level to be the same throughout the country? Or did you operate a little more sensitively when you were in the Russian inhabited areas? I'm, I'm curious as to how the, the ethnic diversity of, of Latvia, particularly, you know, the a chunk of the country, you know, speaking Russian and the government not always treating them particularly well, how did that affect your, the way you conducted the mission? So I, I mentioned earlier that I think the thing that surprised me most was to what degree we worked directly with the Latvians on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that I think is essential to understanding the environment better. So the first thing I'd say is it, it's not accurate to say that 25% of Latvians are Russian. What, what is accurate is that their first language is Russian. But the vast majority of them now were born in Latvia, see themselves as Latvian. And so it's a language barrier. It's kind of like saying that Quebecers are French. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to French speaking. And so we did not look at all at the population as being, these are Latvians and these are Russians. Mm-hmm. And Latvians themselves don't look at it that way. And so we we went throughout the country. There are absolutely areas where the viewpoint towards the government or towards NATO is slightly different, but it is a European country. It is a NATO member country. Mm-hmm. And, and that with the interactions we had with Latvians was exactly what we saw. Well, I, I'm glad uh, that you had a chance to talk to us and, and clarify what was going on there. You know, because it's been going on for so long, you know, so long, five years, it doesn't get the media coverage that other missions do or other activities do. And it's not, I don't think, really well understood by the Canadian public why we're in Latvia, but it is, I still think, the largest Canadian mission abroad. I'm not getting the news that the 200 guys are in, Latin, in Ukraine these days, but I'm certain that the folks in Latvia now are. Your blood pressure might be elevated just a smidge these days, given what's going on in Ukraine. So I don't think that Latvia is at risk, but stranger things have happened. So I appreciate you spending time talking with us about Rhythm Today, about what you what you did, what you're what you're up to, and helping to deflate my misconceptions about the the state of play in in, in Latvia and amongst the the NATO missions there. So thanks for for sharing your perspectives with us and your experience. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. It was a, it was a great experience being there. I had high expectations and to be honest, they were, they were surpassed. Absolutely. Current events are putting a bit of focus on, on that area, but, but I think Latvia and Opry Assurance from a Canadian perspective is one of the, the best opportunities we have to demonstrate Canadian leadership, you know, at, at a NATO level and, and it's going quite well. With our own honor segment of this week, I wanted to highlight three things that are quite distracting in different ways. I've just started watching the show All of Us Are Dead, which is a Korean zombie movie. This is not the first time I recommended a Korean zombie movie, Train to Busan. I think last year I recommended it, it was very high on. And so far, this zombie movie, which takes place in a high school, 
where the students are not all that friendly with each other, but then they get really unfriendly with each other once the virus breaks out. And so I'm it's very curious as to how they're going to be able to stretch this out for 10 episodes because, man, there's a whole lot of zombies and our allies at the school are in grave danger. But I, I think it's really, really compelling. The show Mrs. Maisel is back for its last season. And it's a woman who's trying to be a comedian. And when she's doing comedy, she's fantastic. And it's also a lot of really good, fun New York humor uh, that reminds me of my, my family way back when. And so uh, it's, it's a great distraction as well. Finally, a show that is made in Canada, but supposed to take place in Colorado or Utah or something like that, is Resident Alien. It takes place in a, a mountain town, but it's actually shot in Victoria, apparently. Resident Alien stars Alan Tudyk, who's an alien who has landed on Earth and was supposed to destroy it, or at least destroy all the people. And now he's trying to figure out how not to do that because he likes a few of them. Anyway, so those are the three shows I'm watching these days. Do what you can to take your mind off of off of what's going on in Ukraine when you can. It's going to be there an hour later, two hours later. It's just an ongoing saga that is utterly brutal, and it's not going to get much better, I'm afraid. But keep following it and keep following the experts that are talking about it. It's it's just really so important. Anyway, have a good couple of weeks, and we'll see you in two weeks. Be well. Pandemic is not over. Even the folks over. Take care.